Hi, this is David Leet, and welcome to another installment of our always popular Author's Answer series, where we put food writers and authors where they should be, front and center. Today we have a treat. We're talking to Amanda Hesser, the longtime food editor and writer at the New York Times and author of three previous books. But today we're discussing her latest work, actually her latest home, <laughs> the essential New York Times cookbook, Classic Recipes for a New Century. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much, David. It's great to be here. Well, you know, this is a very large book. Now, this is not even <laughs> doorstop large. It is more like a blunt bludgeoning object large. <laughs> well, I wanted it to be multi-purpose. Well, I guess so. You don't even have to use mace in the city. Just put that in your purse and you can bludgeon anybody who's going to come after you, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I want our listeners just to hear this. This is just, that's the book. It's huge. It's good for waiting terrines, as I say. <laughs> yes, you did in yes. the book. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us how this book came to be, because it's huge. Well, it all started actually at uh, lunch of Sri Lankan food with um, an editor. Her name's Susan Chira. She's at the Times, and she's a national editor now. But she was overseeing the books department, and she was, you know, cultivating book projects among Times writers. And she was wondering if I was interested in doing anything, and had I been thinking about anything, and I totally hadn't. But then we just got off, you know, started talking about cookbooks and and cookbooks that. The Times had published, and of course that led to talking about the New York Times cookbook, which was by you know uh, Craig Claiborne, and it was a a huge hit, and you know is on the shelves of you know thousands, Everybody. tens of thousands of um, uh, uh, people's kitchens, and um, and it you know it just occurred to us that that book had been published in 1961, was this great hit. And since then, so much had happened in food, and the and the and the Times coverage of food had evolved so much, and had become this whole like, food had become its own section, er, practically a mini magazine every week, and all of these you know great writers like Molly O'Neill and Mark Bittman had you know. Um, had be had become uh, these well known um, sort of figures in the Times food pages, and and. Uh, and sort of no, we no one had um, kind of distilled it and kind of celebrated that period. And so the book started that way as a as a kind of like let's do a New York a, a big New York Times cookbook that that kind of brings us up to the present day. What I didn't realize at the time was that the New York Times had been publishing uh, food recipes and tons of food coverage for a hundred years before Craig Claiborne. So mid 1800s. 1850s. And the 19th century um, part of that is, is is this phenomenal gem. There were tons of recipes because, of course, people cooked a lot more. They had to, and mm -hmm. they were, you know, craving advice and wanting to exchange recipes. And so they had this very kind of bountiful supply of recipes every week. And so tell me, with going yeah. back to the 1850s until now, how many recipes in the book? Um, you know, I don't know the exact number. It's over a thousand. Okay. But of course, there are tens of thousands of recipes that have been published in the New York Times. Right. And then all of these recipes have been tested, of course. Oh, yes. I felt really strongly that even though, you know, the New York Times, of course, tests their recipes before they publish them, you know, things have changed over the decades. And I wanted to know that everything that was going into this book was noteworthy and interesting. And I wanted to be able to write you know authoritatively about what was and what is interesting about these recipes, why you should be making this, you know, um, uh, raspberry granita from 1898. Okay. And how long did it take the whole process beginning? Six years. <laughs> Six years. Six, I did not plan on that. And in between you had children <laughs> yeah. and yes. you moved to Brooklyn and all these things happened. Yes. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about the process. So you put a call out to New York Times readers for their favorite New York Times recipes, and you write in the introduction that some of these recipes played really vital roles in families' lives and people's lives, sometimes about marriages, sometimes about children. What were some of the most surprising elements of that when you started reading some of these requests that people had and thoughts they had about recipes. Well, just how deeply attached they were to these recipes and that, you know, they had, you know, passed them on to their children and it was something that they made every year or that, you know, their friends would get together and, um, you know, and they love, you know, they like to tell me how they tweaked them or improved them. And, you know, they just had these personal relationships for decades with these recipes. And um, I was very moved by that. They're clippers. These people are probably recipe clippers. They are. And, you know, I have to tell you the funniest thing about putting out this call was that, of course, many people sent their suggestions by email, like thousands of them. But some people, and I would say many people actually, um, sent their actual like tattered, yellowed (laughs) clippings, which I thought, how generous of them to like actually hand them over to me. And, you know, they had all these hand markings on them. And I mean, they're really, uh, they, they are a treasure themselves. That's very sweet of them to have sent them in. Now, one of the things we notice on Leeds Culinaria, and I'm sure you noticed this on your wonderful Food 52 uh, blog, that's food52.com, that the most popular recipes that we have are desserts. That's the ones that are most searched for and most cooked. And when we do a quarterly review of the most popular, it's desserts. Did you find that in this also, that the ones that people were sending in or requesting or talking about were desserts? Well, I... You know, I I would joke around when I was working on the book that I should call it chicken and desserts because (laughs) um, because so many people had written in about chicken recipes or dessert recipes. I mean, there is some fascination with desserts, and I can't exactly put my finger on why it is. I can't either. Um, But I really enjoyed that. I happened to like baking. And so, and there were so many old um, style desserts, like, you know, frozen pies and sort of semi-fredos and um, mousses and chiffons and all of these things that we sort of don't really make anymore that was Mm -hmm. so it was such a great opportunity to kind of like leap in and make them I'm just thinking one thing that comes to mind is this like old wedding cake recipe which is really kind of like a black cake with you know made with molasses Mm -hmm. and spices and nuts and fruit and you know it was a 19th century recipe and you know I'd never seen anything like it before and it was such an adventure to be able to kind of like you know have an excuse to make something like that. And I think one of the things I found fascinating was you were saying that some of the recipes that appeared in the Times really didn't work. You found, you discovered that some of them just really weren't working the way they should. Oh, sure. Um, Well, there were a couple of things that were consistent, which um, I I did note in the book, which is that actually like cooking times have changed a lot, like Mm -hmm. meats and vegetables. They either cook more quickly or people just don't or we appreciate them in a less cooked fashion. I mean, I would say for vegetables, that is true, obviously. Yeah. Like we we like sort of, um, you know, crisp tender or yes. whatever they call it. Yeah, 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 um, with our vegetables now. Um, but certainly like a braised chicken dish is cooked in half the time. Interesting. That, and, you know, I have not been able to pinpoint exactly why that is. I did write to um, Harold McGee. And, you know, it's the kind of thing you can only really kind of theorize about, whether it's that they were – really pasture raised and so had like, you know, uh, more dense muscle tissue and took longer to break down or that they were different sizes or, you know, there's um, there's a lot of speculation. Maybe the equipment also was different, how it was heated 
Yeah. Um, I don't know how accurate some of the ovens were back in the 1850s. Well, of course, you know, the, the 19th century recipes never told you an oven temperature. They say it would say bake in a quick oven. Mm-hmm. Quick oven meaning a hotter oven. Right. But what does that mean? Moderate, so I would have slow. to often guess, you know. And, you know, I mean, a lot of the older recipes I've really had to kind of um, – deconstruct and reconstruct into a modern form. It doesn't mean I updated it, you know, like cut out the butter or anything. I didn't do that. I really wanted you to be able to make a 19th century recipe, but I wanted to give you the kind of instruction and tools to do so. So you didn't tailor it to modern tastes? No, no, absolutely not. Well, I say that generally, but for example, you know, I I did not include um, a terrapin recipe. Mm -hmm. Terrapin was very popular in the 19th century. It was kind of a luxury ingredient. Honestly, I just wasn't that excited to cook terrapin or hunt it down. And, you know, there were other things, though, like quail and pigeon that I did include because they were very common. And, you know, I they're not that hard to acquire now. I was selective. So one of the things we notice on Leeds Culinaria, and I'm sure you noticed it on Food 52, which is food52.com, great website, is that desserts are very popular. But 80% of our recipes are desserts. So I noticed in the book you have that same situation. Talk to me a little bit about the most popular recipes people were writing in and either requesting or saying that they remember, and then that lone savory dish. Talk to me a little bit about that. You know, so so the most popular recipe in the New York Times of all time was a recipe that was published by Marion Burroughs called Plum Tort. Mm-hmm. Actually, originally it was called Purple Plum Tort, and she published it something like nine times. It was so popular, people wanted her to republish it every year because they may have lost their clipping, like they didn't have the <laughs> internet to look it ba- look it up again. Right. And it's, it is this wonderful, easy tort, and you can freeze it. It's just, it's impossible to mess it up. Can you use the fruit in it? Oh, yes, you can. And... So, and I think I say something in the book about how, like, there were, she, she published one version where she did, like, it was, like, low-fat and banana, and I felt like that was when she jumped the shark <laughs> with the plum tort. But um, anyway, um, but, you know, David R's pancake, there are just these wonderful things that um, are kind of, you know, now sort of old-school desserts. Mm-hmm. And, and so out of the five most recommended recipes, four of them were desserts. And, um, and also four of the five, exactly, were more than 20 years old. And, and so the one, the, the one, the outlier is um, Ed Joby's lasagna, and I feel very guilty because I actually didn't include it in the book because a bunch of other people, though not as many, recommended Regina Shrambling's lasagna. I uh, made both. Okay. I preferred Regina's. Okay. So um, you know, you can people can look up Ed Joby's, but I have a bunch of his other recipes. You know, and he's kind of partially um, responsible for the uh, very famous uh, spaghetti primavera from Le Cirque. Le Cirque, wonderful. Well, I also was very honored to find out that I was in the book, too, with the chocolate chip cookie of I did course. with Chef Torres. So that was quite an odd. Thank you very much. <laughs> and that's in the dessert section, too, when people want to look it up. Now, you you say in the book that it's kind of a fever chart of culinary passion. I thought that was a great line. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what that means. Well, you know, in our sort of, you know, fad-driven culture, mm-hmm. you know, we, we become obsessed with panini. We become obsessed with... Bloody Marys. We become obsessed with all sorts of different kinds of foods. And so, you know, over 150 years, we've had so many of these kind of mini eras. Mm-hmm. And I tried to capture them as much as possible. So, you know, one of the things that I did after I got sort of the, the majority of the book together was go back and just really think through in a sort of timeline fashion, like, what of those um, kind of 
little like mini passions did, did I did I acknowledge you know all the ones that I sort of felt felt like needed to be to to be touched on the, the, the risotto craze risotto craze right. you know there's so many and that's sort of what I also love about Americans approach to food is that we are very passionate and yes you could say we have short attention spans but we're just we're enthusiastic mm-hmm. that's I think that's wonderful about the way we cook and the way we are eating these days but Talking about some of the older things, you have there's 18 chapters, and yes. they're all arranged in chronologically in each one from the oldest to the newest recipes. Yes. Now, which <laughs> maybe it's maybe a slightly controversial way of organizing a book because it does go from like chicken to pigeon to duck to turkey to back to chicken. You know, <laughs> right. it jumps around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, an index is very key with this book, but I wanted people to be able to appreciate that that sort of um, evolution. Like how how we started, you know, in one place and evolved to a totally different place within a certain kind of um, genre, whether it's beef or it's, you know, salads. Well, what I thought was interesting is that the book, each chapter, and those of you who are listening, when you get it, you'll see what I mean, has a narrative arc in a certain sense. Oh, good. I'm glad. Because it takes you from the earliest recipes all the way to the newest recipes. And your head notes, of course, help us along, but they're not really tied to the previous recipe. They, they're, they're standalone. But when you look at how they're arranged and you look at where things are going, again, referring back to that fever chart of culinary passion, I think it does tell a story just if you're flipping from page to page, which I thought was very oh, fascinating. I'm really glad that that came through. I like that approach very much. So take us through very quickly one chapter and how you dealt with dealing some with some of the older recipes and some of the newer ones so we can sort of follow for those people at home can listen and how you handled this. I'm going to give you two examples. Okay, great. Okay, one is again we're talking a lot about desserts, but let's while we're on that topic, let's keep going. Okay. So like a sort of a thread that you can see in the dessert chapter is, you know, in the 19th century you see blancmange, which is basically a a uh, gelatin-based milk pudding. And it's very firm, and they used to form it into like egg shapes, and then they would make serve it on top of wine jelly, and they would do all sorts of kind of like funky things with blancmange. Mm-hmm. And it didn't taste like much. It really was like a milk pudding. And so, of course, I, you know, I found the best one. Um, that uh, there are tons of them. I tested a bunch and found found a great one, included that. But then you see. Later on, you start seeing, you know, pudding, and then you see, or pot de creme, I mean, and then you see. And pot de creme starts coming in when? Like 60s. That's a Craig Claiborne era thing. Mm -hmm. And then you start seeing creme brulee. Actually, I think it's Le Cirque's creme brulee in the Mm -hmm. 1980s. And then panna cotta, which is now the kind of like current sort of pudding that, and maybe even we're kind of getting beyond panna cotta now. But, you know, we we sort of went from this milk-based, like very firm pudding to this, you know, uh, sort of putting in a little, like French baked pudding in a cup to the creme brulee has that you know it's a little sna- a little more snazzy with the the, the crisp richness. top. It's really really rich, and then the the, the panna cotta, which is really just like the essence of of cream held just just held together by gelatin. You know, so you can see this kind of arc of like we're still interested, we're still iterating on this idea, and mm-hmm. we're still interested. Now, any thoughts on where maybe those cream desserts might go next? If you had to do trend spotting, oh gosh, um, who knows? It could become some kind of like. Freeze-dried, freeze-dried frozen things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> With all the molecular You're much better at predicting going on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think drinks is a great, another great chapter where that you can really kind of capture this kind of evolution. I mean, in the 19th century, it was very much about bowls and punches 
And then, you know, in the there's a, there is actually this dearth of drinks, you know, for the from the early 19, early twentieth century, and then it picks up again in the forties. Is that because of prohibition? Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just because the food writing uh, amount of food writing in the times um, really um, dwindled during that period. Why was that? Um, it was the war years. Mm-hmm. Also, I think. Um, from what I understand, the executive editor was not really fond of food. Um, and then they realized that there was value in the, what they called kind of like the women's pages right. in for advertising. And that's when they started cranking them back up. But that, then there were these sort of cocktails that were, you know, the 1940s, 1950s, early 60s. They were much more like blunt cocktails. They, I mean, they're, you know, kind of gin rickies and uh, – or lime rickies. Lime and rickies. Uh, Sorry. And um, – and Bloody Marys, and they're great drinks. And then actually the drink kind of, again, dwindled again for through the 80s. But then in the 90s and the 2000s, we really became interested in um, in cocktails and, and making them much more nuanced and sophisticated. And, you know, I think all the drinks in the drinks chapter are fantastic, but they're very kind of different from each era. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of fun to kind of you, um, go through and taste yeah, them. Culturally hop through yeah. all the different eras. Yes, exactly. That's fascinating. Now, let's talk a little bit about the the Claiborne and the Hesser competition <laughs> here. Well, there, there's no competition. <laughs> no, one, no one can compete with Craig Claiborne. People, everyone has it. I have it. We all have uh, his New York Times cookbook. And tell us, first of all, how they differ. We have a sense of how yours is. How does it differ from Craig's? And then why should someone own both? Yeah. I Well, I I definitely think they should own both. <laughs> of course you do. But, it's the um, you know, and, and if you don't have the Craig Claiborne one, you should totally go and get it. You can actually get, you know, great copies online. And the thing about Claiborne, first of all, he was just, he had a great sense of style and he had a great adventurous palette mm-hmm. and he was a good recipe writer. You know, the thing about his book is he's he's actually not writing. He doesn't write very much in it. He really, it's really about the recipes, but it's a beautifully designed book. It covers all areas of food. Of course, it's a very heavy em- emphasis on Europe, but there are some like Polynesian things and, right. you know, some Asian things like they're just kind of dabbling in it back then. But this is 1961 and it really was a kind of snapshot of, of the kind of 1950s the decade, I guess mostly really 1950s recipes that were published in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And I actually did not really refer to his book at all when I when I went about this book because I knew I was looking at a 150-year span. And of course, Craig Claiborne um, is heavily represented in the book because you know so many people wrote to me about his recipes and I cooked so many of them and I really came to love him as a mm-hmm. cook and a food writer. Um, but um, I just, you know, one thing I, I think why I do want to clarify is that although my, the book covers 150 years, the, the emphasis really is on the on the sort of past two decades. I mean, you, so because so much has happened mm-hmm. and and our kind of interest and um, sensibilities have become much, I would say, um, more complex in a, in a great way. Um, if you just look at all the different kinds of cuisines that Mark Bittman touches on in his column, The Minimalist, I mean, it really is, you know, hopefully a kind of greatest hits of Mark, a greatest hits of, um, of Molly. O'Neill, greatest hits of the dining section of the past decade. And, and also the, the New York Times Magazine has been a, a really, you know, I want it to be this kind of distillation of all, you know, the most noteworthy over that, that whole period. And I assume the older recipes are probably very hard to, to replicate because as you say in the book, they don't tell you what oven temperature, they don't tell you what pan size. They just say, they assume so much knowledge, make a paste, put it together and bake it. Yeah. But I, of course, wrote them so that 
I, I explained everything so that it, they're written like modern recipes, right. but I, you know, I started with what I think of as like, they were in a, almost like a tweet-like form. Yeah, you had said that yeah. in the book. Yeah, I mean, they were very short, um, very much abbreviated, and you kind of had to understand and know what was being talked about and understand that, you know, when you make a cake that you, of course, cream, butter, and sugar first. Nobody tells you that mm-hmm. in a 19th century recipe. They just will tell you the amount of butter and the amount of sugar, and sometimes the amount of butter, butter is, you know, a large knob. So it really it's interesting when you have things like knobs of butter and you have thumbs of ginger and it's it's you have to do a lot a of back end a gill yes uh-huh. so a lot of back engineering to some of those recipes and you say that you actually you fill them out so yeah. we're able to to make those recipes without kind of looking perplexed and scratching our heads oh I, yeah I think any of the old recipes you're not going to feel any they're not going to be daunting because okay. I've written them as modern recipes but I didn't modernize them. Okay, that's a very good way of saying it. Yeah. So the last question I want to ask you is, this experience must have in some way transformed you as a cook, as a writer, even a mom, as you're cooking some of these things. What have you learned and how has your cooking and approach to food changed after having done this? Well, you know, I, I mean, the great thing about, you know, cooking 1400 recipes is that you cook a much wider range of things than you normally do. Because of course, we all fall into ruts and, and, you know, cook the same four things over and over and over. And so it just kind of, it forced me to kind of expand my horizons and to sort of, um, I know I just learned so much. Like I think of Julie Powell, and she, you know, she cooked you know four hundred and something recipes from from uh, from mastering French, French cooking. And of course, it just a it makes you a inc- much better cook. You know, I I'd been writing about food for fifteen years, and I thought I was you know, and I was a trained cook, and I really thought I kind of knew a lot, and I've, I did, but I I've learned so much more. But it just it reminded me that. While it's good to have a kind of repertoire of, of things that you know you can cook well and that are comforting to you, it's also really a good a good thing as a cook to kind of get out and adventure. And get out of your comfort zone. Yeah, totally. That's a good way of looking at it. Well, thank you, Amanda, for coming. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We've been chatting with Amanda Hesser, author of The Voluminous, The Essential New York Times Cookbook, and also co-founder of Food52.com. That's Food52.com. I hope you'll go because I enjoy going there often. I'm David Leet for Leet's Culinaria. Tune in soon for another episode of our Author's Answer series that will always leave you hungry for more. Mm-hmm.